1: Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and I need a haircut. If you're just listening, you don't need to know that. And if you're watching, you probably already know that, so let's leave my grooming for another episode. Today's guest is Sam Hodley Brill, and he is a philosophy student who is rather invested in Kantian ethics. Now, my own position at the start of this episode is that I don't think that reason and logic and all the tools of philosophy necessarily can encapsulate what it means to be a good person and what it means to contribute and to be a part of building a better or at least a good society. However, Sam lays out some frameworks and we play around with them. And I ended up discovering a lot about what I believed, or I think through what I believed. And I think he did so too. This conversation starts out rather heavy, but it really opens up when we get into how different philosophical systems or conceptions might be able to help us navigate these contentious Times So get ready and maybe bring out your pen, but I think you could just think out loud with us through these issues. Here is, without further ado, Sam Hodley Brill. Would you want to... Give me or us an outline of like what is like the basic Kantian morality. Is, is that the one where you kind of imagine if everybody adopted what you believe, like you kind of foresee the outcome and try to see how your morality scales in a social context? Is that kind of the root?
0: Yes, that that yeah, that's the root. So Kant has basically two very famous principles for which he's remembered in ethics, and that first one is what you just said. Um, it's usually called the Formula of Universal Law. Okay. Never, to always act only according to uh rules, or he uses the word of maxims, to only act according to maxims which you could will to become universal laws, only okay. act in ways such that if everybody acted that way, things would be fine,
1: yeah,
0: basically um and then the second principle is the formula of humanity, and that's the one he's been more celebrated for, I think uh that's the one that says to always treat people as uh never merely as means to an end but always as ends in themselves so that's just like a core liberal principle you know uh, respect for human dignity um and there's a long
1: expand on that and make it a little bit more concrete for like the average person like what does it mean to treat human beings as ends in themselves or even kitty how do you treat the kitty as an end in itself?
0: Well, so on one of the one of the classical objections to Kant is that he actually thinks that it's it's only human beings who um, have any moral worth. Okay. He thought that you could basically treat animals however you wanted, um, which most people nowadays think is sort of grotesque, and I'm one of them. Um, but to treat a a being as an end in itself particularly a human being or a rational being is to basically allow them to set their own ends for themselves, right? So allow them to determine what they're going to do, what sort of choices they're going to make, and to not basically treat them as just a tool, but as a, a, a being who has intrinsic worth. So it doesn't mean you can't ever use people in any sense at all, right? If I get an Uber, the Uber driver, right? I'm sort of treating them as a as a tool. They're, they're they're driving me where I need to go, but at the same time I'm compensating them. So I it, I would I would for instance if you like dine and dashed and didn't, you know, pay for your food, then you would be treating all of the employees who served you in that restaurant as a mere means. Yeah. And not as ends in themselves.
1: And as you explore that and figure out its permutations, what are some of the snags when you approach, um, I don't know, any of these models of real-life conditions? How does it need to be upgraded, I guess, is another way of phrasing that question.
0: How does the basic Kantian framework need to be upgraded?
1: Yeah, or how do you perceive it uh, being, uh, I guess, uh, modeled into current discourse about social justice? Okay. Okay. Postmodernism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: Yeah. So, well, there are a lot of different challenges that could come from a couple of different areas. One is just sort of that we're starting with the assumption that ethics really is uh, universal, and that you know this applies to all human beings, no matter what culture they're in. And so, as someone might complain that you're sort of begging the question against the relativist there. I feel like just part of the meaning of morality that to say something is wrong for me or for someone else in a certain situation basically means sort of just entails that I also believe it would be wrong for anyone else in the relevantly similar circumstances to do the same thing. So, I mean, that, I mean, that's my, conception of what it means to be talking about ethics and Kant says basically the same thing Um, another problem it's faced from a couple scholars so some feminist philosophers have critiqued sort of the whole tradition of western moral philosophy on the basis of its um, hyper abstract nature and not enough focus on sort of particular concrete circumstances and details and Hmm. special relationships that you might have um and so a lot of people have reacted to this and developed what is now usually called care ethics or the ethics of care which tries to make sort of nurturing caring relations sort of the foundation of ethics Hmm. Um, i mean it's often remarked that you know there would be no moral agents at all if they weren't first cared for by typically their mother. And so this is like a, a sort of crucial, constitutive feature of of morality. And instead of, so you have these like, you have the formula of universal law, where it's like this sort of like algorithmic process that you just sort of reason through in your head. Yeah similarly you have like utilitarianism where you just sort of add up certain numbers, assign certain values to certain things and the feminist critique is basically this is not how moral reasoning works, you know, we have particular attachments to particular people in the world because of certain special relationships and well at least this is a big part of moral life that the Kantian and the utilitarian traditions have been neglecting. yeah so I think there are ways to um I don't actually think that's a devastating problem for Kant um, to get into the details of why might take a, a little bit more time than <laughs> would be, uh, would anyone would want to hear at all. But
1: well, you never know, maybe not. but lo- allow me to ask you this, why, what is attractive to you about Kant? How did you end up studying and I guess following or entering into his discourse?
0: Yeah, so Kant, um, when I took the first philosophy class that I took, um, I mean, I took like a critical thinking class first, but when I took Intro to Philosophy, and we covered ethics, you basically just covered utilitarianism and deontology or Kantianism, Um, and I, a common couple a sort of common pair of examples that is used to motivate certain moral intuitions and to see what side you might fall on are like what's called the trolley problem. Um, plenty of people have heard of the trolley problem. So the basic idea is like on, the, there's two ways of uh, setting up the problem. And so the first one is there's just this train that's about to run over five people. You can pull a lever and it'll divert and only run over one person. And when you phrase it when you frame it like that most people if you ask like you know an undergraduate classroom most people will say you should pull the lever and save the five it's like oh you know five lives greater than one but then you just change the example and you have a sort of uh it, originally it was like a fat man uh sometimes now be more politically correct people say like a man with a large backpack or something and the idea is he's on a footbridge and uh, same thing it's going to the trolley will hit and and kill five people except this time the way that you can prevent that from happening is by pushing the man off the bridge and he he's so heavy or his backpack so heavy that he will stop the trolley and the five people will be safe and mm-hmm. there most people sort of ha- have a more aversive reaction to that they say oh that seems wrong but then uh, the sort of tricky problem is well what's the morally relevant difference between those two circumstances I mean in one you're pulling a lever and the other you're pushing someone but in both cases it seems like you're sort of sacrificing an, an innocent bystander to save five people um, and to, to get an even more grotesque example you can just ask someone whether they think it would be justified to kill a random person on the street and harvest their organs to give to five people who need those organs to survive. And Mm. there people are just, oh no, we have these strongly like liberal uh, sort of sanctity of the individual, Uh, at least I do, and many people do, uh, intuitions about this case. And so the utilitarian doesn't seem to have a very good answer to that question, at least in principle, if it were true that killing this person and harvesting their organs to save five others would actually produce more overall well-being well, then the utilitarian has to say that that's the right thing to do. Hmm. And as a Kantian, I'm inclined to say, no, nah, no, 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 that's, that's wrong. Uh, you can't just go around killing innocent people because the consequences could be good. Um, hmm. So, as, I mean, this debate goes on forever and people fall on both sides, but I tend to fall on the Kantian side.
1: How does this play out um politically, I guess, or in your view, when you start to try to imagine a political arena or certain political values or communal values, um, what are some of the things that you end up uh, implementing when you follow through on what you, I guess, believe or your maxims?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I feel like there are many, many issues in the political arena that could go either way that you could argue or one side on the basis of either Kantianism or utilitarianism it's going to depend a lot on the, the the things you have in mind so for instance if um, if we're talking about a really taboo issue like abortion um, well there are two ways you I feel like you could argue for both sides with both views so you could either take the stance that the fetus is uh you know, for all relevant purposes, a human being has a right to life. And therefore, uh, as a Kantian, you would say, no, 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 you can't you can't um abort the fetus. But equally, you could say that either the fetus does not have a right to life, because it's not a, a person, or even if the fetus does have a right to life, um, the woman's right to bodily autonomy outweighs the fetus's right to life. And so you could have a Kantian argument for um, allowing abortion. And with utilitarianism, I mean, you can argue both sides. You just have to argue that the numbers stack up in your favor. Other in In other cases, I mean, historically, Kantians have had some pretty pretty uh, disturbing views I would say I mean Kant himself had some disturbing views at least by our standards he thought that um, masturbation was wrong because it was sort of uh, so Kant thinks not only do we have to treat other human beings as ends in themselves we have to treat ourselves uh, Mm. as ends in ourselves too and to masturbate you're just treating yourself as as a mere means uh, to your own pleasure Um, he calls it defiling oneself by lust uh but the the utilitarians actually came out on this a lot of issues that i think most of us now would recognize as just like good progressive values like being completely okay with homosexuality because it's not hurting anyone right i mean let them do their thing the kantians might have argued that oh it's disrespectful to yourself um the utilitarians were some of the first people to argue for animal rights, uh, or not rights because rights is not a term that utilitarians want to use, but for arguing in favor of treating animals with much more compassion than they did at the time and than we often do now. Hmm. Um, met, met all sorts of things. You, you'll see utilitarians kind of have some... Well, I I was going to say some libertarian streaks, but equally it could go down on the other side and they could argue for socialism. You could imagine an extreme, um, a sort of Marxist view based on utilitarianism that says, well, the revolution must take place. No matter how many people we have to kill to achieve the communist revolution, uh, the ends justify the means. That's a, a famous Dictum used in support of utilitarianism: the ends justify the means. You won't hear that in Kantianism. The idea is: well, if the means are going to violate someone's dignity, then it doesn't matter. The ends can never justify the means. If the means treat someone as a as a a mere means, hmm. <laughs> to use that word too many times.
1: Yeah. There always seems to be on the once I get into ethics or into discussions about ethics, especially philosophically minded versions of ethics. There's there's always this kind of uh, hint or taste of playing God. Like we're we're kind mm-hmm. of pining for an ultimate sort of judgment or we're projecting some sort of eye that knows much more than we could ever know. So any sort of moral calculation, we're always going to be wrong. We're always going to be. And, and if we don't restrain our imagination or restrain our, you know, um, abstraction, we, we end up kind of toying around with this hubris, in a way. That's just how I feel about it. I'm very intuitive, like when my imagination goes. You can see how people can kind of get full of themselves, especially when they get some certain amount of uh, capital or or power. Then they just start acting Mm -hmm. out this ethic that pretends to know much more than it does, because it it assumes rightness in any situation.
0: See, that's interesting. So, this, uh, I I um I don't know if I would say that when, when I was early on in my sort of academic career studying philosophy, studying ethics in particular, I wasn't exactly in that boat, but in a similar one where when we would talk about these sorts of thought experiments, I would get uncomfortable and think, you know... How are we going to base our moral theory off of this sort of thought experiment that's so contrived and is never going to happen in the first place? You know, in the real world, there's all this uncertainty built in. You don't know, you can't be so confident that, you know, doing this will actually lead to this. And so, I mean, there's all these problems that took me really like a year to sort of just get To understand the point that these philosophers are like okay just accept the thought experiment we're just trying to isolate the relevant variables so we can see what's morally relevant and what isn't and I took issue with that but your point is 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 an interesting one too and it's one that I've been thinking more about these days as I learn more about Um, Mm postmodernism I was inspired because of the cynical theories to Read um, particularly Foucault. Um, not much of his written work itself. The the sort of the histories, the the critiques, right? The the archaeologies and the genealogies and yeah. I found his writing, you know, not very enjoyable most of the time. But but reading through transcriptions of interviews that he gave, I found um, very fascinating. And I found his views. Often, sort of, very plausible, and and like not saying that much when it comes to certain things. So like, when it comes to, and I think that the skepticism that you express is something he would be completely on board with. When you say something like, "Well, look, I mean, this hubris is a serious problem. Like, we have these these philosophers who are claiming to espouse." some transcendental absolute moral truth for all of humanity um, forever. And yet they think that, you know, they can base it on this sort of intuitive premise that like pleasure is good and pain is bad or, or something like that. It's, mm-hmm. it's very anthropocentric and trying to mask it all up. And often, you know, Foucault would also say it's very, um, it's very, at least for the the history of western philosophy very eurocentric sort of like sees its own culture as cultureless, right doesn't take into account that there are certain contingencies associated with the culture that these philosophers have grown up with that have contributed to their having these intuitions that led them to see these certain views as plausible and others as not plausible and hmm. so Foucault would say something like you know There's what we need to realize is, you know, you can have the moral theory that you have, but to a large extent, it's going to be a product of the environment you were raised in um, your reactions to other ideas. And you can have these views and you could say that, you know, this view is better than other views. But what we need to realize is that there's sort of no view from nowhere, you know, that we can transcend our specific cultural context to access yeah. some you know absolute fundamental objective moral reality
1: yeah the 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 problem with that in practice the problem with that theory in practice or the problem with the practice of theorizing in that way is that uh, it tempts people into thinking that they can just keep on stepping outside. Like the the cynical theory, the critical theory. I can step outside by critiquing this as some sort of particular. Like it still taunts people <clears throat> into thinking that they can step outside any framework or just say that this framework is, is a particular. This is not a universal. Uh, it sets people up into basically sneaking in through the back door this hubris of mm-hmm. uh, well, I'm above it. Okay, uh, I can. You're, this is just Western. This is Eurocentric. This is this is whiteness. Like that, that idea of whiteness is this claim. At mm-hmm. least in critical theory and the way it's promulgated through anti-racist trainings, it it, it it kind of tries to point to whiteness as this invisible universal system that we are going to critique. When what they end up pointing out is just the way that things kind of work at this particular time. Um, do, do you see what I'm kind of saying?
0: So let me just make sure I, I think the idea that you're pointing at is that because we can do this sort of debunking process that yeah. a sort of like a genealogy gives us, there's this implicit normative conclusion that, you know, because these things are, you know, culturally specific, white Western male, because of all that, we're justified in rejecting it and just going with with something else. But that doesn't necessarily follow right i mean there's oh, yeah. you can do the descriptive analysis that says you know you can do the nietzschean genealogy that says look you have these values because you know even if you weren't religious yourself there's this uh sort of intertwining of western culture with judeo-christian values and there's yeah. this like slave morality and so we get that but Getting through all the debunking, the, the genealogizing, doesn't actually get you to the conclusion that these critical theory activists, I think you're suggesting, want it to get them to, which is because we can give this genealogy, therefore we can just abandon the theory and we can go with whatever theory I think is better. So they, they can do all the descriptive work that, you know, sort of Foucault might set them up to do, but they're ignoring what I think Foucault was very good at always Hmm. specifying, which was like, he's just in the business of problematizing. He's not offering any solutions. He just (laughs) wants to do the... um, He just wants to show you what's what's gone wrong here, and he'll do it with anything. But uh, there's the implicit danger of someone
1: taking that
0: as sort of justification for them to impose whatever new theory they want to
1: impose. And that's why... uh... In a way, I don't mean to, I don't mean to bag on Foucault, but it, it's kind of like it's sophomoric. If you're never gonna actually start to build a thesis, build a positive thesis, at least at least Nietzsche, for better or worse, and uh, realistically or unrealistically, he posited The yes. He posited the love of fate, amor fati. He posited the ubermensch, right? So he went through Mm -hmm. and he critiqued, and then he grasped after something next, right? And, And that next is always kind of a letdown, but it's less of a letdown than just infinite problematizing, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, at least so,
1: artistically, I mean, at least in anything, in producing anything, in producing a conclusion, let's say, to racism, in producing a conclusion to the problems of gender, of, of uh, these imbalances of power, like, you have to get to the next step. Like, where's that, um, you know, and maybe it's there's only just a utopia. Maybe it's just, it's kind of boring. At the end, Is like, you're just a human being, and you're a product of your time and place, and try to do the best with what you're given. I don't know.
0: Yeah, so I think... I mean, there are legitimate, in my view, criticisms of Foucault on this sort of point where he'll he can problematize all he wants, but you know, at the end of the day he's not a nihilist. He has political views. He he, he is campaigning to, you know, abolish or significantly reform the prison system. There's all these mm. goals that he has. And I think what he would want to say is something well like look yeah i mean i have these views right i'm a gay man i want homosexuality to be decriminalized um, i want the prison system reformed i want mental institutions reformed, et cetera, etc etc but i don't have any independent basis on which to justify these moral and political conclusions i have these political and moral conclusions because of my particular history my experience growing up in the environment that i did so i have these values these are my values. Um, it does end up in like a very like impose my values, values
1: on anybody else.
0: Right? Like, anyway. I mean, I can in the sense that like, I, I'll campaign and I'll like use rhetoric to try to convince other people that I'm right. But I don't claim to have any like, philosophical argument that can like, justify independently, these conclusions. Hmm.
1: So you reached out to me, um, and you kind of put out the word on Twitter that you were looking for a critique, perhaps a positive critique. I don't know. So I guess this is kind of the question we're talking about. James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, uh, they wrote a book, Cynical Theories. And they go through and they tell a story about postmodernism. And it's a very cogent, coherent story. And their end, their resolution, you have some issues with or you want to explore – what their um, their solution is to the critical theories, uh, and there's various different critical theories, but what, what James advocates for is a return to universal human values, return to mm-hmm. liberalism. Um, yeah. Do you have some arguments right. for or against that, or do you want to take that argument further?
0: So just to clarify, just like sort of stage setting for people who, you know, Of course i don't expect people to be familiar with what i'm doing i'm not i don't have a platform or anything but um yeah so when i I was looking out uh i was reaching out to people on twitter trying to see if i could find someone who is very positive about the book and who has read the book and thinks it's very good um to have a dialogue with me because all i've seen so far is like people like me who think the book is not very good um, talking to other people who think the book is not very good and people who think the book is excellent talking to other people who think the book is excellent and so you know i i don't like this sort of uh epistemic bubble Mm. not hearing the other side not actually engaging with the other side um so i want to try to have those conversations um but yeah in particular so i will be having um a what's it called letter wiki that that platform yeah yeah so one of those with um Oh my God! Did I forget his name? That's not good. Uh, Jonathan Church. What is it? Jonathan Church. He yeah, he's the guy who wrote whose white fragility book on white fragility is coming out in January. Yes, Jonathan yeah. Church. So shout out to Jonathan for accepting that. So that'll that'll be all the like substantive stuff of like the bulk of the book. Go find that uh, later. But yeah, I'm I'm very interested to talk about the. Um, the solution that that um, Helen and James offer at the end. So I think that uh, actually liberalism is the best political theory, the best one that I've come across, um, and that I'm also sympathetic to, like Helen, you know, a little further left sort of economically, sympathetic to greater social safety net, um, wealth redistribution. I don't like the extent to which. The gap between the poor and just sort of the lower and middle classes, and on the one hand, and the the super rich plutocrats on the other, I think has gotten ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I do think that liberalism as a political framework is is um, what what we should be sticking with. And I do think that in some ways, uh, the scholarship that they are critiquing, uh, at least there are a couple examples of the scholarship that they critique that clearly do violate certain basic liberal principles like freedom of not necessarily freedom of speech, but uh, the value of the sort of uh, marketplace of ideas, right? Uh, Open debate, civil discourse and dialogue between people who disagree as a sort of way to try to get at the truth.
1: Uh um, And and some of the critical or cynical theories are adverse to the open marketplace of ideas? Are they kind of dogmatic or they demand agreement on certain principles and restrict speech in certain ways? Yeah, so
0: that's the big one that I think where, especially in their analysis of D'Angelo, I mean, I think it's pretty clear given um, just a a straightforward reading of what Robin D'Angelo is saying um, in her book, Why Fragility, the fact that the of the many ways that white fragility manifests, um, we have staying silent, um, arguing, or sort of walking away, which sort of constitutes, or uh, which sort of constitutes all the possibilities in a in a tense um, dialogue on racial issues, except just agreeing with the with the person, whether it's the person of color who's <laughs> giving you. Um, their opinion or their experience or Robin D'Angelo sort of lecturing you on why you need to do this. So that does to me foreclose a possibility of disagreement. Um, mm-hmm. it would be interesting to actually get Robin D'Angelo to be able to address the question of like, Hey, are you aware that your theory has this implication? Like, what do you think about that? But you know, she, she probably never will. Um, And so yeah, so I think that's like the clearest example of like, um, I don't don't think that that's necessarily anti liberal in the political theoretical sense, but it's anti a very crucial principle of sort of liberal enlightenment, uh, Western values of Mm -hmm. open dialogue and the freedom to disagree with your interlocutor. And um, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: so yeah, so I think that is like the the those sorts of things are the main examples that um, that Helen and James identify that really do require a response of like, hey, look, let's get back to basics. Let's look at you know John Stuart Mill on liberty. Let's look at you know Immanuel Kant. Let's look at all these other liberal uh, philosophers, and recognize that we actually very much need to be able to critically disagree with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, The problem that I would identify is just that I don't... So, I mean, there are a couple problems to identify, but the main ones are, I don't think that they characterize liberalism correctly. I think they have a sort of naive conception of liberalism. And I think that they fail to address certain really important meta-ethical questions, um, which is sort of in line with, for people who are familiar with uh james's twitter persona he's gotten into arguments with philosophers before because he has sort of said that like meta-ethics is a waste of time um mm-hmm. and i think that there's a there's a part at the end of the book that shows that he he um he actually needs to do some meta-ethics
1: okay there's for a his argument there. to, okay, to okay. It. well yeah. can can you define meta-ethics or can we can we lay the ground sure so that?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, if you think of sort of first order questions about what's right and wrong, what makes an action right or wrong, what makes a certain person's character morally good or morally bad, sort of trying to identify often called normative ethics, trying to identify the certain right making or wrong making features of actions. And so you have utilitarianism that says, well, the right making feature is maximizing pleasure or happiness. Um, You have the Kantianism that says, you know, sort of being uh, acting on a maxim that you could universalize or respecting persons, treating them as ends in themselves, just like straightforward um, first order ethics. Metaethics asks more fundamental questions about the nature of moral value. Where do moral values come from? Um, Right. If not God, many people, uh, religious people will argue that if if you have no theistic framework, then actually you can't get objective morality off the ground at all. So questions about, well, if there is objective morality, where do these moral values come from? Um, And if -hmm. there isn't objective moral value, are there just no values at all? Are we going to be nihilists? Are we going to say instead that morality is relative across cultures or perhaps across even just individuals? Um, So questions about relativism versus universalism questions about whether there are moral values at all and if there are are they sort of man-made or are they like real just like somehow out there objective features of the universe um, questions about what moral statements mean like when I say more uh, when I say murder is wrong what am I saying am I making a factual claim am I expressing how I feel about something these are all just sort of your standard uh, catalog of Metaethical ethical questions.
1: And why are they important? Why can't you... or Without them, it seems like you can only go so far without them. Is that your contention with, uh, I guess, James, loosely, well, or his position?
0: So, if it were true that we could all agree on what sort of the content of first-order morality is, then, I, you know, then maybe meta-ethics would never even come into question, because why would we need to know where these moral values come from if we all can agree what morality requires of us, but I think where um, meta ethics becomes basically inevitable, something that you're just going to have to address it is when you start to realize just how much moral disagreement there is, and especially within a um, within a particular society. So I mean, you have the United States, right? We might all agree on certain things. We might all agree that it's wrong to kill babies, right? But we we don't all agree on more particular questions. Is it wrong to kill a fetus, uh, or you know, abort a fetus? Is it wrong to um, is euthanasia wrong? Um, I mean, is should uh, should we? operate with the Electoral College, right? Recently, uh, the left has become increasingly hostile to that, seeing that the you know they've won the popular vote in certain elections, but uh, the Electoral College has gone things Democrats' way. So there's all these questions on which we have really deep moral disagreements. And so then the question becomes, well, either we're going to need to find a normative ethical theory that can answer these questions, clearly Um, but the problem is i think that you know your standard examples of utilitarianism and kantianism they don't give straightforward answers to these questions Mm -hmm. um, for the most part right like i said earlier you know you could argue for for one side or the other so the fact of moral disagreement becomes a serious problem and we have to start asking how is it that we that we can you know feel justified in our moral conclusions which ones can we have um you know what what exactly is this liberal they, they talk frequently of, of liberal ethics and consistent liberal ethics well one problem with that is that there's so many different strands of theory within the liberal ethical tradition you have kantianism utilitarianism you also have social contract theory and so all of these can produce very different um results on a number of questions so i think that given the fact of of moral disagreement Hmm. um, this is something we really need to address and particularly because of how dangerous um helen and james seem to think uh sort of fundamental scientific disagreement is that they think sort of postmodernism and critical theory are engendering because everyone sees their own knowledge as particular to themselves right so you know You can say the Earth is flat. I can say the Earth is not flat. We're just talking past each other. I think that they're identifying this as a recent problem in the scientific domain, and yet it's a problem that we've been dealing with basically for the entire history of our country in the ethical domain. And so there needs to be something said there.
1: It seems to be the case. Uh, Hopefully this fits into what we're talking about. It seems that... We need to theorize a little bit about what is the uh, w- what can contain disagreement? what what sort of order can allow for a bunch of different viewpoints? And what mm-hmm. sort of order at the same time can contain disagreement but restrain agreement in the sense that once there's a certain mass of people agreeing in the same way, they will then, take over everybody else in a way they will squash because there's so much people with such a fervor of agreement, they can no longer right. contain disagreement. How do we uh, form a place where we can? And I think it, it's not, I don't know if it's a moral question. It's kind of like a, this is really stupid, but kind of a, a vibe where we can relax. We have a, a stature mm. or a certain character in, In our civis, in our polis, that allows us to facilitate brotherhood or another ideal that contains disagreement. There's something higher than disagreement there's something higher than agreement and it has to do with maybe a care philosophy maybe a love philosophy maybe there's there's some sort of mm-hmm. I, maybe it's meta ethical thing it, it it might be a, a feeling or a patriotism some sort of higher ideal maybe maybe even a theology mm-hmm. i know that that probably will never come about where we can agree on a god or agree on god but i i wonder if like meta ethics kind of leaves aside the mental discourse and contains it within something that's more rooted in reality or in a bodily or a metaphysical love
0: so you raise many interesting and very relevant points there so first when you say you know we what we need is a sort of system that can allow for a certain amount of disagreement without people sort of you know Immediately going to war over these disagreements. We need to allow people to have their own opinions and to have different moral standards up to a point But we can't allow disagreement on or I mean we can't allow there to be a plethora of competing views on the most fundamental um, Hmm. Moral questions, right? We can't allow half the society to think it's okay to murder a certain population of the society, right? We need to have some core consensus of beliefs and that's yeah. that's the that's the goal that's what liberalism is supposed to do best or better than any other political theory is it's supposed to allow for a multitude of competing conceptions of the good the good life morality and yet to also um, preserve everyone's individual rights so that they don't have to be subject necessarily to the um, the moral peculiarities of of their citizens with whom they disagree on these more uh mm. these these less deep fundamental moral questions and so liberalism is i think the is the best framework to do it and then the other thing you brought up is the um the sort of unifying ethos or spirit that uh, that a government or a constitution or a city needs to have, or, you know, a state, a nation needs to have, so that we basically all sort of respect the um, right of our fellow citizens to disagree with us, to have different conceptions of the good, et cetera. Um, But that it's a sort of both, it's it's a sort of unity in difference, right? Hmm. Sort of, you know, all distinct we are one yeah. uh, when you were talking about theology I was thinking of something like um, Plato's noble noble lie have you heard of the noble lie
1: could you talk about that
0: so so in Plato Plato's Republic you know in my view probably the greatest work of philosophy ever uh, he's outlining his ideal city and it's you know what would a just city look like and this is supposed to be uh, a sort of allegory also you know it's it's a it's a crucial fundamental question for uh it's an allegory not allegory there's an analogy between the just city and the just human being the just soul and when he's constructing the just soul he said or sorry the just city he says well you know different people will be better suited to do different things right some people will be the most sort of intelligent and gifted these people will need to be the sort of the rulers, the philosopher rulers, philosopher kings. Some people will be more spirited and physically capable. These people will be the guardians, basically the army. And some people will just be best at sort of producing things, right? So the people who make the food, the clothing, the the material goods that you need. And so he has this these three tiers. And then the, the problem is, well, how are we going to get everyone to realize that Not only are they best off Well, no, basically, how are we going to get everyone to realize that they? Have for self-interested reasons, they have good reason to take their role, right? They don't get to choose what role they play in the society for Plato, Mm -hmm. right? So this is Mm -hmm. sort of totalitarian state, but but uh, but Plato thinks that this is necessary and so he says, "Well, the way that we're going to get everyone to realize that they must play their particular role is through this noble lie. So we're going to tell them that they're all descendants of uh, the same sort of um, like tell I think it's fathers, from Athena or something? or something. Yeah, like this this uh, this fatherland, right? They're, they're sort of like sprouted out of the ground, and and they <laughs> they owe their their life and their unity, their brothers uh, through this." And so there's a sort of noble lie oh and yeah so the it's the myth of the metals and he says, well out of the ground you sprouted in these ways and the producers you guys were made of bronze you guys have bronze souls and and uh, the the warriors you have silver souls and the philosopher kings you and queens actually uh, have have gold souls and you know. Plato recognizes, like, look, this isn't true, but we need to we need to tell them this noble lie so that they sort of uh, cohere. So, I mean, that's a it's you know, I don't think that that's going to work nowadays. But something like that, right? To sort of uh, you know, nationalism clearly brings people together. Um, you know, when you go to war, right? Sort of when a country when a country goes to war, oftentimes. Um, especially if they're sort of defending themselves, the nation will come together. Um, you also have,
1: yeah, a group project uh, or a group enemy.
0: Right, right. And so one question is how can we do that? And especially, it's especially problematic now because arguably America is more divided than it ever has been. And so this becomes a crucial, crucial problem because, you know, we're not even talking to people on the other side of the political spectrum, uh, mm-hmm. let alone you know I mean people mm-hmm. it's like the worst thing your your child could do is marry someone of the opposite political
1: party, yeah, right? Um,
0: <laughs> and so yeah, so I mean this is a serious question of like how do we get these people unified? Um, I don't think that there will be an, an easy answer
1: so you don't think that liberalism itself can do that there's not enough uh, there's not enough traction there that, that's kind of a, a very boring bland it's just the house it's not something that the people in the house or the people in the gymnasium can rally around like there, there's
0: I I mean there's
1: not a unifying principle I
0: don't want to rule it out but it's hard to see how it, how it would work um Because liberalism allows for so much deep disagreement on issues that people, you know, tie their identity to, right? Mm, Um, mm -hmm. You know, some people will say something like, you know, I I could never marry someone who's uh, pro-life or I could could never be friends with someone who's Um, pro-life. And if that's the case, then it's going to be hard because liberalism allows for that sort of thing, uh, promotes that Mm. sort of thing, really. It's gonna, it's gonna be hard to see how liberalism could do it. you know. Perhaps if there were like a clear illiberal enemy that sort of led to collapse in the sort of way you could imagine like what the Soviet Union was during the Cold War, people might've used that as a sort of way to rally around liberalism. But really it seemed more to, to rally a, around like a capitalism and just anti-communism. Mm-hmm. At least in, in that historical
1: period. Yeah. It seems like um, when you were talking about how divided we are, and I, I just want to pose the question maybe we're not really divided. Maybe we are narrowing ourselves down into identifying too much with our politic identifying too much or putting too much stress on that which we believe in or that which we think or our opinions maybe our opinions all that stuff and maybe facilitated by the the you know the kind of the the uh, scapegoat of our era right now social media has tricked us into distilling ourselves into these little boxes we are much bigger than that and maybe calling upon Something greater than agreement, disagreement. And I kind of this another cop out, but like, you know, the image of the centrist as the person who is operating the grill, right? Maybe mm-hmm. we need to return to the actual fundamentals of what it is to be a human being having uh, good food, having community, having uh, events where we just come together and we uh, maybe we've made the political theater. Too important and placed it in a in a higher position than it needs to be. Maybe we need to relegate that and put something higher, put put something above that. uh, Art, music, culture, something like that. And maybe there are interests that would have us not do that because they uh, they benefit when we are at war. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a a good thought. It's it's um it's a challenging one because Hmm. you know at first glance our society seems to have just gone so far in the direction of identifying with our politics that it's hard to see a way out it's hard to see how you know i mean because you say you know we Mm -hmm. should focus more on on music on you know having good food on community but all these things have become completely saturated with politics as well i mean you look at like sort of what sort of um art pieces movies albums are winning like the most prestigious awards well you know seriously political ones um yeah and i mean there's all sorts of issues there i i wonder if it's part of it i i feel like i have more faith in the potential of um another point that you raised earlier that i'm not sure if you were implying it in the way that I'm going to take it now. But when you said, you know, we're identifying too much with our politics, you know, we're too invested in making this a sort of constitutive feature of our identity. And what I sort of immediately went to there was, well, we're just too confident in our own beliefs, right? We're, we're too sure that we are absolutely right. Our party is absolutely correct. The other party you know, is a bunch of
1: yeah.
0: either evil, uh, you know, racist bigots, or like you know, social justice warrior communists,
1: elitists, and, yeah, or communists, yeah, yeah.
0: or elitists, yeah. yeah. And so, I think, and and this is also exacerbated by social media, where all day long you're pretty much only coming into contact with people who agree with you. They confirm your beliefs, and you get into this loop of just affirming your own priors and get distancing yourself further and further from the other side Hmm. and i think a push toward epistemic humility and the recognition that we could all be wrong about anything almost anything at least um it would do a lot of would would do a lot of good The only danger is if one side does that and the other doesn't at all, then Hmm. nothing, nothing really happens. Um,
1: I, I, I think that, yeah. While you're talking, I was thinking we're running toward that which uh, we agree with. We're conditioned we have been conditioned or we allowed ourselves to be conditioned to enjoy being agreed with and to enjoy disagreeing in concert against something. I'm thinking Twitter, yep. right? We, we kind of rally around that which we agree with and uh, rally around aggr- disagreeing with something. And what I've started to do is get bored with that and kind of look for something that is unexpected. I'm looking for things that are unexpected or something that goes against not necessarily agreement or disagreement, but oh Opens up some new territory to me and modeling curiosity. Humility is great, mm-hmm. but it's kind of boring. Curiosity is kind of a cure for pride. It, it, puts, uh, it puts your energies into – humility can be very uh, – put you into, into a state of suspense, put you into a state of anxiety because you're not certain anymore, right? And mm-hmm. then you kind of get caught on that mm-hmm. certainty. If you follow your curiosity, if you follow your taste, you end up living this – is, this is the gambit. What you want is one side to events values that make them happier – in such a way that other people kind of want to be happy too, right? And so they kind of loosen up with the game yeah. that they're playing. They're like, oh, there's a greater game here. There's, there's better rewards if I interact with inter- information, interact with other people in a different way. And I can hear uh, some criticisms about me being a little, uh, you know, rose-colored glasses and a little utopian in a way, um, kind of thinking that the better nature will w- win out, so...
0: Yeah. I mean, but I'm, what, what else are we going to do? Right. We, <laughs> we either try it or yeah, right? we just give up. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I think that like, so, I mean, I, right. And you know, I would identify pretty, pretty uh, strongly as like a leftist. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't know if leftist is something different from like being far on the left. Um, both economically and and culturally, though, I think, you know, as, as I've said, I think that there are points where like the the far radical left goes too far, and it it gets counterproductive and a little bit ridiculous. Um, so not being super, uh, super experienced with talking to people that I disagreed with strongly. This past summer, I made it a point to, um, to reach out to people and join communities, basically, just like join the uh, IDW discord server, right? And uh, talk and talk to people that um, I disagree with about issues that I have never had a conversation with somebody on the other side about. So I mean, like, and that has Fundamentally transformed how I think about democracy, how I think about the other side of the political spectrum. And I started to very, like, uh, to to an extent that I simply hadn't before, uh, to humanize the other side, to start to have close friends that I disagree with deeply on political issues, and for that to be okay. It, and that gives me... Beyond like a, okay, is
1: it enjoyable? Like, is it more than just okay? Is it yeah. actually enjoyable to have friends that you disagree with?
0: I Yeah, I definitely. And I mean, I, I think we all have some sense of this, just not in the political spectrum. Like, I mean, I think we all have friends we enjoy, you know, arguing, you know, who's the greatest, you know, MJ or, or LeBron right you know who's the greatest yeah. soccer player Cristiano Ronaldo or, or Lionel Messi at least you know I have these experiences <laughs> and you know people can disagree about whatever their friends have common interests and it's kind of fun to argue back and forth in like a maybe this is like a, a, a more masculine um, testosterone type of thing to like have to enjoy like the, the arguing with your friend and then being like ah you know whatever And then everything's cool after that. At least my experience is that that can be really enjoyable. Um, And so to now have that in the political spectrum is just something that I have not seen. uh, I had not experienced and I have not seen any of my friends except, you know, maybe the occasional like Thanksgiving where your conservative uncle shows up and there's like an argument there. But that never ends positively. Versus this is like actually quite enjoyable, I've found. And it really has just like in a time where you in a time when you have people saying things like we're headed for a civil war, like having this sort of actual concrete disagreement with someone who I really disagree with, um, you know, they're saying this person, you know, the I forgot the kid's name, but they're arguing like this guy is justified in killing those people at the protests. And I was like. You know I completely thought uh, the other side, but I see their arguments, and I thought, "Oh well, you know what?" Like my gut reaction was very strong, um, and I still have my opinion on this. But at least I can see that they have like a reasonable argument, uh, and that actually gives me faith to some degree in our ability to mm. have constructive political disagreements and to and to be a functioning democracy. And all you can do is do your part with the people around you and hope that they will sort of pass it on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I don't know where I am on the political spectrum. I do tend up intellectually agreeing more with libertarian right, but I end up acting more libertarian left like i I act more from care i I have concern and i act out my concern for other people but i don't ever want to impose that behavior on other people so i'm kind of this i kind of jump back and forth between those two uh Mm -hmm. polls because i think it's much more um i want people to own their care i don't i don't want people to mandate fixing other people's problems i think people need to fix their own problems and i don't to to wrap it back to go try to get back into that a kantian very abstract way of of trying to categorize my morality i think in terms of narrative i think in terms of personal growth that everybody's cast into this life and they everybody has to deal with their own situation and if they are ever too actually benefit from any sort of social problem or program, any sort of help from another person, you know, you can receive $100 from the government, you can receive some help, but you don't really own it until you start to build wealth and generate wealth on your own. And and I mean wealth, not only monetarily, but but in doing good and, and being good in yourself and, and kind of recognizing if you have a bronze soul. But the onus is still for you to make gold out of it, to really work through your issues on a personal level. And I would never be able to tell that to anybody else, the the, the the quality of their soul or how they could ever make their soul better. But I know that in acting in a certain way, I improve myself, and I improve myself when I'm helping other people figure out their problems.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a very Kantian way of thinking. I mean, hmm. Kant has specific examples where he says, you know, Um, you have you have a duty to yourself to cultivate your talents you also have a duty to others to um, help them in their cultivation of their talents and you don't have to do these things all the time because then you could only ever do one or the other but you do have a responsibility to make it such that you live a life where Hmm. when you can right, when you get a break from working on yourself you help other people, but it's in a very particular way where you help other people to perfect themselves rather than to try to be hands-on fixing their life.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to I guess to kind of try to wrap up this, our first discussion, what do you think is our responsibility as citizens right now in this time, in, in this country? What, what's our responsibility? What, what do you think is our common duty wherever we are on this agreement and disagreement, uh, wherever we are on these spectrums?
0: The, the first thing that comes to mind, and I think it's, it's probably my answer, is, is, to, is to keep an open mind, to listen, and to make an effort to talk to people you disagree with. Because otherwise... We'll continue to live in this completely polarized situation um, and nothing will get better. You'll continue to have people, you know, flocking to, to QAnon on the far right and flocking to Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo on the far left. And these people will never be able to have a constructive conversation with each other um, if they continue to be so stuck in their ways, so sure that the way that they see the world is absolutely correct. And so to remind themselves, and I think one good exercise for cultivating that epistemic humility, and that also sparks the curiosity that you were emphasizing as well, is to start to think about, and this is actually a very Foucauldian idea, so coming back to Foucault, is to start to think about just how much of what you believe and what you take to be true is so deeply determined by the specific circumstances of your life, Um, the state in which you grew up, the family in which you grew up, the friends you had growing up, the interests you've cultivated, the religion you may have had or not had, all of these sorts of things that were really never up to you. Hmm. And by the time that you really came to be a free and responsible agent who can make their own choices, Uh, make their own decisions, think about what's justified for them to do and what to believe. By the time you get there, you already have all these inputs that have been sort of programmed over which you had absolutely no control. And to recognize that the fact that somebody else has had a completely opposite programming
1: Hmm.
0: does not give you any license to write them off completely, you know, the fact that somebody that I completely disagree with, right, who thinks that Donald Trump is is the savior for this country and that we've never had a better president, I mean, that could have been me, right? If I were born in a completely other circumstance, if I were born in completely different circumstances, um, and if I were raised with completely different values, that really could have been me. So I think to remind ourselves that we are not the sort of, Um, Like we are these collages of all these different experiences and ideas and I think personally the vast majority of that Construction of this collage was not up to us at all and that we should recognize that and appreciate that There are other people who are just as intelligent as us just as empathetic as us Just as open-minded and caring as us who have completely different beliefs and it's Mm -hmm. really it's it's not their fault it's not our fault and so that can maybe that can be something to to bring us together as a, as a nation a little bit
1: so when you accept that that kind of relativity i can see people resisting that because of the anxiety that that might impose because the relativity it might be summoning up like this absolute relativism but i think that there's a middle road of being flexible of of finding yes. a place to Not just to imagine that you are you and they are they, but that you have this bigger capacity to actually uh, conform to them, even just entertain their ideas. And then that in and of itself is enriching because it shows you a lot more about yourself that you're not seeing um, or things of the world that you're not seeing.
0: Yeah, the the very important um, and a a great point well taken is, is always important. In addition to the you know the cultural conditioning and the construction of ourselves over which we have no control once we are you know free and responsible moral agents we're rational beings right we're not just billiard balls going whichever way the forces of physics push us we can critically think about the views that we have been brought up with and I mean I have friends who Were raised to think, for instance, that, you know, gay marriage was wrong and that gay people would would end up burning in hell. And once they got to a a certain point in their life and I could have, you know, serious sit down conversations with them and, you know, they wouldn't walk away with their mind changed. But there would be that that uh, seed planted in their brain, this sort of seed of, of skepticism or doubt. And once that's there. They sort of start to think about these things without even trying to and they start to and eventually they might change their mind on certain things. And I think we all have experiences about of of changing our minds on things that we grew up thinking uh, were sort of set in stone in some way. And so it is, of course, very important to emphasize that despite all the relativity, the diversity, we have the capacity for critical reflection. And that is a, a crucial part of what makes us human beings.
1: Mm-hmm. And I would say that it's worth fighting for or fighting against, or at least taking a stand, let's say, to be less uh, warrior about it. That's still a warrior phrase, taking a stand against those ideologies that diminish or preclude that critical thinking. Anything that asks you yeah. to stop questioning is definitely, uh, should be targeted because I just, I, I would, I, I have a visceral uh, yeah. Uh, reaction to anything like that.
0: Yeah, same, same. And it has been worrying to me to see this uh, from from my perspective, rising on my side of the political spectrum. Um, you know, I'm I'm not sure whether it really has risen all that much or it's sort of mm. just come more to the forefront or it's become uh, it's just that the dogmatism is now in and sort of infecting an area of society that is like in our faces all the time. But uh, absolutely, I think that uh, to make any progress whatsoever, we need to allow that everything is um, open to, to critical scrutiny because otherwise um, we get stuck and then we get something like fascism yeah. You know,
1: yeah, I think we, we all should, turn into billiards. Some, I think we 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 yeah. lose our You know, I was thinking today or the last couple of days about I I always hated arguments for or against free will. Like I always just like I don't know why, like they just bored me or like I was irk, I do, uh, they honestly, irked me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like oh, people don't talk about that anymore. And I was thinking, you know, social justice is what happens when people stop believing that they have free will. Like that's what we have. We just have, and and I don't mean social. I think I mean a very particular um, social movement capital that I've S, seen. Yeah, I yeah. guess capital S, capital J, or what happened at Evergreen, like like that's the good yeah. visual, like where people yeah. believe so much in just being a part of this historical force that they have no agency whatsoever and that therefore they have to revolt against this system and, and they lose all self-respect. They lose all ability to actually evaluate their behavior and, and to like see if they're acting good or bad anymore. Like, and I was just thinking about how the argument for free will is that if you you see instances of it, of people losing that connection to their own responsibility or whatever. Like, I don't know whether or not it exists, but I don't want to live in a society where people don't, you know, at least work on gaining more and more responsibility over their actions.
0: Right. I mean, because whether free will exists in the absolute metaphysical sense, we can definitely compare the degree of at least colloquial freedom someone has when mm. they're evaluating their own choices, thinking about their actions, versus when somebody's sort of just following orders, right? You know, yeah. it, whether free will exists or not, yeah. uh, you know, whether either of those things are determined, one of those things is, is, is a lot uh, scarier than the others.
1: Yeah. Can I ask you a throwaway question for people who are watching the video? Yeah, of course. What's What's going on with the shirt, man?
0: The shirt? Yo, this yeah. is... Uh... Can,
1: can you stand up and show us what's yeah, going so on there? Is... Oh!
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool, huh? <laughs> That's true. It's this company called uh it's this company called Awkward Adult. They make these uh every shirt they make is like uh hand painted. It's pretty cool. Oh, wow. oh cool. Yeah. So I, you... I literally just got it in the mail today, so I was like, gotta throw it on.
1: Excellent. Uh so Sam, are you um is there any product that we can push to people? Do you have a blog? Uh we'll link your Twitter, but are you working on something where people can read your thoughts in more detail?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, so working on several projects at the moment, um, school is pretty busy. So yeah, okay. they're yeah. a bit delayed. But I mean, the the thus far, I've only published like one piece of writing for a public audience. And that was um, my criticism of one particular chapter of Cynical Theories. Uh-huh. Uh, the eighth chapter where they where they talk about reified postmodernism, which okay, is sort yeah. of the, uh, the the ultimate like the boss uh of like third generation justice scholarship yeah reified yeah. postmodernism, social justice scholarship particularly because of the focus on philosophers rather than and you know in the previous iterations there was a lot of um theorists right you had queer theory critical race theory you had some sociologists you had some literature professors and yeah. the vast majority i, I mean I'm, I'm pretty sure every single Scholar except for Robin DiAngelo who's criticized in chapter 8 is an academic philosopher and I found myself Reading things that I thought were were not accurate um, in their critiques So yeah, so that you can check out and then I'll have a couple more critiques of the book uh, coming Particularly I have uh, uh, a critique of the first chapter which is on like the original French postmodernists coming Mm -hmm. pretty soon and the eventual hope, because I can't get the shit off my brain, is yeah. to, like, make, like, a video essay of, like, compiling all my thoughts, put it up and be done with it, and then I'll move on to something else. But, yeah, the next thing besides that will be the, um, the exchange with Jonathan Church on Letterwood. Okay,
1: great. Um, when is that expected to kick off?
0: Hopefully soon. Hopefully, I can start it this weekend once I once I knock out these these uh, other papers. But hopefully soon. But he's also quite busy, so it it might be at a slow pace. But looking forward to it.
1: Well, I hope that this conversation uh, facilitates uh, your product. I know it was great to have this conversation. It really added to to my thinking on these matters.
0: Yeah, I I appreciated the conversation. It was, um, you know very relevant to many things and also quite intellectually stimulating so i appreciate it
1: well yeah i apologize for the cat he's asleep now but he he uh needs a whole no, bunch of attention right
0: now the, the cat is welcome i'm not i'm not one of the original kantians i i care about i care about animals for sure
1: excellent well what do you, uh i'm gonna end the recording there what a- congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast! If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via PayPal dot me slash Benjamin Boyce, or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.